All right. Well, we're going to take a little bit of a turn and spend at least the next two weeks um, taking a look at some orientation toward Christmas season scripture. Um, and I wanted, I'm just kind of titling this kind of mini-series before Bethlehem, um, looking at some passages of scripture that really talk about um, the Advent season before really the time of Christ being born. And just kind of setting some context in our minds, a little bit of historical context uh, in our minds as well. Um, this hopefully serves as not necessarily a, a fully orchestrated or planned out introduction, but hopefully a, a, a natural segue into what I, I think I'm going to start into in January, which is a kind of a survey of church history in light of the, the celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation um, just kind of looking at the, the big sweep of, of church history, which with a primary emphasis on really on Scripture and on uh, the impact of various understandings of various doctrines, various misinterpretations of key passages of Scripture, and just the impact that those big moves or movements have had on uh, what we know as the church or what we also might know as um, those who would claim to be a part of the church but really are... Um, profiting false doctrines. So um, it's going to be, I think, hopefully a compelling um, study for us. I don't, it's not going to be overly academic uh, in terms of just you know, digging into minutiae of history or times or dates or, or that kind of thing, but really more oriented toward providing a worldview context and, um, and thinking about um, how God has moved over time uh, in the life of his people both uh, in terms of dealing with um, controversy, uh, doctrinal controversy and even heresy, uh, but also to give us a sense of of, um, the shoulders of people and their work and their efforts and their sacrifice uh, upon whom we stand um, even today. So that's a a direction I think we're going to go for at least a brief period of time um, and starting in January. But for today, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. And we'll, uh, we'll use this as a, a launch point for what we're going to talk about both today and, and certainly next week. And I just want to start by confessing I am not a master historian. Um, in fact, I, I'm certain that there might be some of you who might have a particular interest in history or Old Testament history or, or the histor- historical um, elements of Scripture and you might be able to contribute a lot of great insight or um, various uh, points that I don't cover. So please feel free to chime in if you've done some particular study or have been fascinated by different periods of uh, biblical history um, uh, or even, even ancient world history that, that you think would be a good contribution to our time. But I, I have tried to kind of capture some things that I think are, are really um, uh, particularly important and insightful and help build a context for uh, what we see here, particularly in the first several verses of Luke chapter 1. Obviously, Luke, um, a historian, a uh, stated historian, and when you look at the Gospels, um, in even the very first few verses, you see uh, this meticulous approach to the record uh, that he presents that is unique uh, relative to the other Gospels and the other Gospel writers. And so this really is a, 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 a Gospel that is oriented toward uh, a more meticulous approach, more more, chron- more chronological approach, um, more in-depth detail uh, in key areas um, from the standpoint of, of Luke presenting this uh, as a historian. 
So I think this is going to be a, a, a good place for us to, to settle and, and start our thinking around some of the important historical facts um, and the context for the coming of Christ. So we'll begin. I'll just, I'm going to read the first 17 verses. Uh, we're not going to deal with this in a verse-by-verse way today. Um, we'll just kind of use it to set the context for what we're going to talk about, and then we'll probably dig into it much more specifically next week. We'll pull a l- little bit from it um, to highlight uh, certain thematic points, but, but most importantly, this is just going to set the context for what we're going to dig into over the next couple of weeks. So let me just begin by reading um, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and we'll go down through verse 17. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Really important preamble to the Gospel of Luke. Luke is actually addressing this to an individual and the, the purpose of his writing, and not just the purpose of his writing, but the purpose of the nature or approach that he took in this writing in terms of orderly, meticulous detail was all about the bolstering of confidence and the faith and belief and trust in these things that had happened uh, in the life and heart and mind of, in particular, Theophilus. And so by extension, this is about presenting to us and to all future readers information that is oriented toward apologetics. It's oriented toward defending the faith, of giving a reasonable account of phenomenal things that have transpired in this period of history, in this part of God's redemptive plan and purpose, but really focusing in on how God intervened into history in a profound and substantive way, but in fact he did intervene into actual history, is kind of the the emphasis here. Picking up in verse 5, we get into some of this historical record. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom 
of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, just on initial observation, what are some really significant things about this? And you can think generally before you think too specifically. What is just massively substantial about this particular account, this opening account from Luke? What are some things that come to mind? Thinking of context. Yeah. Okay. I mean, for me, especially as I get older, it's really. Yeah. Okay. What else? What do you see is just sort of massive in its substance, particularly when you think of the context of of this particular passage and this time and the timing of it? Yeah. Okay. At that point, it shows God's providence mm-hmm. in um, it wasn't just luck that he went in. Right. And God had a purpose, and he worked it out in many ways that were uh, almost behind the scenes. Yeah. So even 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 still, even even though we're we're setting this up, or Luke is setting this up as a, a historical record, it's not a historical record uh, apart from or distinct from the intervention of a sovereign God in his in his work. Okay, what else? Yeah. You just mentioned Luke setting up as a historical record, but those first four, four verses make it painfully clear that Luke is, is attacking this, and it, it says exact truth about the things he has been taught, and many people have set forth a record, and, and, and he has talked directly to eyewitnesses. Uh, it, it is, as far as I know, there's no other book in the Bible that starts with this yeah, it's interesting, you know, when you think about it, you, you, it's, we have to be a little bit, um, we have to infer a little bit here, so just t- take that for what, what it is. I'm not, I'm not stating that I, I have some, you know, vision from God of what was in the mind and heart of Luke when he wrote this, but if you just take the, the, the way that he wrote that, that introduction, um, it's kind of just matter of fact. It, it's not as though he's... Um, you know, trying to embellish or anything like that. He's just stating what he's, you know, what his purpose and intent of the letter is. But in doing so, he's also highlighting a level of meticulousness and precision that is is important. It's like it's significant, especially in light of, of what comes next. What else about this this passage, this this encounter, this, this event in the life of Zechariah in particular, it just jumps out. Or do you want me to just tell you what I'm thinking? Would that be better? It jumps out to me that, he, that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even okay. From his womb. That's, that's new. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's big, right? I mean, obviously there have been other um, historical figures in Old Testament history who the Holy Spirit had come upon them for some particular purpose, but this is different. This is significantly different, so for sure, yeah. How about this? How about that this is the end of 400 years of prophetic silence? Like, this is, this is how it comes to a conclusion. That, that really is an astounding 
key piece of this particular context that here's Zechariah, and, and this is, I'm going to refer to this in just a moment from a little bit of a different angle, but here's Zechariah, and the key, the key sort of um, distinguishing characteristic, if you will, that is highlighted about Zechariah and Elizabeth here is that they were righteous before God. These were people who were Old Testament saints. They were redeemed in Christ before Christ, basically. They, they, had, they had faith and it was reckoned to them as righteousness, the same as Abraham. And this is a, this is a clear designation and it's no small distinction. But, but really, in, in sort of the, the human perspective, there's nothing particularly significant about these two people in reality. I mean, you know, he's a priest and he's, he's you know, of a particular order of priests. They, they broke the, uh, the priesthood into 24 orders, and so he was a part of this particular order of priests, one of the sons of Aaron, Abijah. Um, doesn't mean that he was of the line of Abijah. That kind of was sort of diminished when the Babylonian captivity occurred, and they reinstituted the orders, obviously, after they came back, but it was a name, not necessarily in pure lineage all the way down. But there was nothing you know, significant about this particular event. And you'll notice that because it just it, it gives you indication of these things. It's giving you some, some background of these two people. I mean, I think it's significant to note that he married, uh, his wife Elizabeth was of the daughters of Aaron, so she's basically a, a person who grew up in a family of priests. So there, there is this context of priesthood living, of familiarity with all the priestly duties and function for both of these people. And so all of the you know, feasts and sacrifices and all the responsibilities that would come to the priestly office, she would have been well-versed in and, and really immersed in as a way of life. So that's a, I mean, that's a significant thing, I think, from just the standpoint of who she was. But the fact of the matter is, is that he's just sort of a certain priest named Zechariah, and a little bit of his, a little bit of background about him and his wife. But when it gets down to what he's doing, it's just he's 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 serving as a priest in verse eight before God when his division was on duty. It's just it was just his division's turn. That's it. And it goes on to say that um, in verse nine, according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple. So this is just normal routine that's going on here. There is nothing significant leading up to the appearance of the angel at the altar of incense to indicate that this is anything unique. This is, this is a, a priest doing his duty at the time and according to the normal custom. And then God, through the angel Gabriel, speaks and initiates the end of this 400 years of prophetic silence amongst the people of God, the Jewish people, the people of Israel. I mean, think of it this way. If you just kind of think about the, the flow of, of prophetic history a little bit, um, and you, you, you obviously you go through the Old Testament and you have you know, the, the um, primeval history and the patriarchal period, and you have the time of of the kings and the judges and all that. But if you just look at the, the, the time of, of key prophets, 860 B.C., you had Elijah and Elijah. 845 B.C., Obadiah. 830 B.C., Joel. 780 B.C., Amos. 
750 to 735 B.C., Hosea. 740 to 690, Isaiah. 725, Jonah. 735 to 700, Micah. 630 to 612, Nahum. 625, Zephaniah. 626 to 586, Jeremiah. 612 to 606, Habakkuk. 606, Daniel, 595, Ezekiel, 520, Haggai, 520 to 515, Zechariah, 445 to 430, Malachi. So you had a steady flow without tremendous, you know, lengths of time between the prophets amongst Old Testament Israel and then silence for 400 years after Malachi. And that was significant. There are people that that wrote during that time and spoke of this silence this dark, silent period during this time. And as I thought about that, I couldn't help but sort of my mind oftentimes when I'm thinking about um, these lessons and teaching and all that, of course my mind goes to more devotional thoughts and, and reflective thoughts on these different truths and just uh, you know, having this, these, these truths of scripture and biblical history sort of intersect with my heart and my mind. And I couldn't help but think this question. Um, What do we do when God seems silent? What do I do when it seems to me like God is silent? Like what what are some of the major tendencies that, or I might even say major temptations, potential temptations that you and I can become susceptible to maybe more susceptible to, when we find ourselves in a place where you might characterize it as sort of a spiritual drought, where you just are are dry and weak and feeling distant from God. What are are some of those temptations? What are some of those weaknesses? What, What can happen? What can we slip into when we think God is silent? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Discouragement, despondency, doubt. Become more susceptible to following fleshly desires. Significant, even questioning the foundations of your faith, right? Seeking the wisdom from men and not God, yeah. All these things. Yeah, all this. This is good. I mean, this is what I, this is what I'm saying. I'm sitting here thinking. You know, you got 400 years of this, and and what 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 would I do? How, how would I handle this kind of? You know, and how do we handle it even now in sort of a sort of a spiritual sense, knowing that God's not silent. Um, he's spoken most explicitly and most profoundly, in particular through His Son, but. But just thinking about this a bit devotionally, I, I couldn't help but think that. And then, I, and then I obviously thought, well, what should I do? You know, what should I be about? What should my thinking be about? So give me some feedback on how we should think during times of spiritual drought. When we, again, I'm, I'm using this term very, very loosely and by, for the sake of illustration. When we think God is silent, when, we, when it feels like God is not hearing, that God is not near, what should we be about? What should we be doing? Go to the 
word because unlike the Old Testament saints where there truly was silence, we have the word where there's never really silence. Okay. We just trust in the promises. I, I, I found myself, uh, I mean, the, the, the verse that came to mind was Psalm 46, 10, to just be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. But I went ahead and read the whole psalm, and I want to read it to you just to think about this. Think about this in the context of, of when, when God seems far, because you have this psalm where there is clearly uh, a sense of, of travail in view here. Um, and then there's these reaffirmations of, of who God is and some admonition on what we should do. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. So the context here is not, it's not good times. But there is a rem, there's a remembrance of things that's taking place in the midst of it all. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose, name, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then verse 10, be still. Another translation, cease striving. Some of the things that you mentioned, trying to take matters into your own hands. You know, losing heart and losing faith. Losing, losing faith. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. These references to what God has already shown himself to do, who God has already shown himself to be, and you'll notice that there's references to the God who has, who has worked even in known history. Tangible realities that are referenced here. There's a call for us to be reminded of truth and rehearse those truths over and over and over again in our minds and to just be still and stop trying to fix all of this and figure it out on your own even in the midst of the earth melting away like wax of travail and war, wars raging i mean that's that's the the imagery that we have here to cease striving to to be still and know thee is god so when god is seems silent, seems distant. It's the time for us to be resolved to remind ourselves of who He is and what He's done. That's why, that's why history, and biblical history in particular, and recounting the works of God is so important. It's not just providing context for us to piece these different periods of time together or these different characters or figures together and understand their place in the scheme of things. There's devotional, spiritual vitality that is earned or gained, I should say, as we learn and understand and know and rehearse these things and are reminded of them. That's the injunction of Psalm 46.
And if you think about this in light of this particular passage in Luke chapter 1, think about Zechariah and Elizabeth who are actually living through as part of God's chosen people a 400 years of prophetic silence. And yet, what do we see of them? Steady faithfulness. Steady faithfulness. Doing what God had called them to do. Steady faithfulness. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. nothing, Nothing prophetically from God, does that mean that I don't have to walk in his commandments and be faithful? I continue to walk in steady faithfulness. So this was in the face of not just prophetic silence, but personal silence. Verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, what do we know about barrenness in that day and time? That's a curse. In other words, they were righteous before God, but before men, there was plenty of reason for people to question their righteousness, their faithfulness, because barrenness was potentially seen as a curse, a barren womb. And you have to know, these are people who are advanced in years, it says. So you have to know that prayers and laments and appeals went up to God over and over and over again. So even in the midst of prophetic silence as the people of God and personal silence in this area of having no child, of being barren and being advanced in years even, there's still a steady faithfulness, faithfulness to what? they know to be true, what they know God calls them to, what they know is their responsibility in their particular roles, steady faithfulness in the midst of all that. It's a powerful, powerful testimony. Yes? We were studying Isaiah this last week, chapter 1, where he's talking about they're making their sacrifices, they're doing the things in the law, but God said, you know, I hate it. Your hearts are far from me. And so reading this, the fact that they were counted righteous in doing his commandments shows that it was from the heart. It wasn't just, they weren't just going through the actions. Right. Their hearts, even in the midst of being scorned and, and not having personal revelation, their hearts were still. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a going An external, yeah, perfunctory. <clears throat> that's right. That's right. This is even more powerful. But <clears throat> so... After kind of wrestling with, I'm just kind of bringing you guys into my own sort of study here, but after kind of thinking through these things, you know, in terms of what do we do when we feel like God is silent and what should we do, and seeing this great testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth in the context of this pre-Advent portion of history, then I kind of confronted the question, is God truly ever silent, right? I mean, let's be honest. God is never silent, Right? I mean, the rocks are crying out. Right? We know that creation declares the glory of God. God is never silent. But, but just taking this period of history, these 400 years, where there is a prophetic silence, there's no prophet in Israel. Let's just, let's just look at that from the standpoint of providence and from the benefit of looking back and seeing some of the ways that clearly God, through his providence, was setting the table, was teeing things up, if you will. 
Let's just get, a, get our, our, our sense of some of the things that were going on. And really, I think one of the, one of the more, I don't know, um, prominent ways to, to set some context is to look at some of the rulers, some of the ruling powers that uh, were in, in power in that region during those silent years. So you start with Persia, the Persian Empire, up until about 331 B.C., that was the, the ruling power. Um, when the Persians conquered Babylon um, and they took over the land, they, they, they contributed to um, sort of this providential backdrop in, in some key ways, one of which is their foreign policy. The, the foreign policy that they adopted um, just thinking back, if you think about the, the Assyrian Empire, when they conquered Israel, they scattered all the people all over the empire. When Babylon conquered Judah, they took key leaders, prominent leaders, the, 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 the people of, of key influence and intellect and contribution to culture and society, they took them out of the land of Israel and Judah, and they took them into Babylon, and the intent was to assimilate them into Babylonian culture and to fully make them Babylonian, basically. To take the best and brightest and to integrate them and assimilate them into Babylonian culture. You see that in Daniel and Ezekiel. Persia, on the other hand, created a foreign policy that allowed conquered people to go home. Um, so you, you see this movement of people um, who had been taken out, mostly of Judah, but some out of Israel, and they, are, they begin to migrate back. And it's during this Persian rule where you have both a migration of God's people back, but you also have the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple during this time of, of empire for Persia, which is not necessarily typical of conquerors, and how they handle their conquered people. So God at work, right, providentially, even in this regard. And then you have Greece coming to power in 331 until about 164 B.C. Uh, In this region uh, of Palestine, it was conquered by Alexander the Great in 331. So Greeks come to power. And they follow uh, some similarities of foreign policy, uh, they allow the people of Judah to have a fair amount of self-governance. So another um, gracious providence of God here. Um, the Sanhedrin that becomes very prominent in the Gospels, um, in the life of Christ, uh, becomes the local ruling council to handle all sort of civil uh, law and matters. And... Um, the Greeks have obviously, there's obviously a, lot, a long period of time there um, from 331 to 164. So they have pretty significant influence on education and philosophy. Not, not always really a good thing um, in terms of the religious devotion in Israel. But probably most significantly during that time is the, um, the emergence of the Greek language as the language of commerce. It becomes, it's almost like English is the predominant language of commerce now. Greek was the language of commerce. It became uh, dominant. And even though the Jewish people would speak in their own dialects, 
they, would, they had to learn and adopt the Greek language for the sake of commerce, for the sake of really financial viability and survival in that time. And this, uh, this became a, a hugely important um, component of God's providential work. Um, the Greek language is a very specific language. In other words, you have a, basically a, a, a linguistic unification process that comes underway. So that the emergence of the Messiah, or in our context, the emergence of the forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist, and the record of that, those events can be recorded in a uniform language that is widely understood. Widely understood. So again, these are things that obviously, if you're in the weeds of living life, you're not going to see this. But if you, if, you, if you look back and you look at the bigger picture, you start to see God's providential hand in all of this. Then you have, after this period of time, Obviously, there's, there's, there's benefits to this um, and some, some things that were good for the people of Israel, a lot of things that were bad. And over time, the Greek leaders did become more and more anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. So it wasn't you know, this time of, of great thriving for the Jewish people, but this, this language piece was significant and becomes very significant um, for the future. You have a period from 164 B.C. to 63 B.C., a period of relative independence as a result of the Maccabean Rebellion um, that, that began to take place in 164. Um, this is a period of time where there was a, a bit of resurgence of the worship of the one true God. As you can imagine, if you go from Persian influence to Greek influence and the Greek pantheon of gods, there was, and, and obviously in Israel's history and the history of man in general, um, idol worship or the worship of multiple deities or foreign gods and even in the face of God's profound revelation of himself, um, idolatry and all, in all of its various forms uh, affected the people of Israel. Well, that was the case as well. But during this time of independence, there was a bit of a resurgence of worship of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and there was uh, as a result of that, in this period of in- independence, there was this growing hope um, and anticipation, sort of a cultural hope and anticipation of Messiah, uh, of the coming Messiah that was providentially occurring. Um, that independence, of course, didn't last. In 63 BC is when uh, the Roman Empire conquers this region and they're in power from 63 B.C. to 135 A.D., so in the time of Christ, obviously, you have the Roman occupation and rule. Um, But the Greek language remains the language of commerce during this time. But what's unique about, who knows what's significantly unique about the rule of Rome in, in this part of the world as it relates to God's providence and what will come in the advent of Christ and Subsequent uh, kingdom work. The roads. The Roman roads. Vast network of roads connecting all of the key regions and major hubs of commerce throughout the Roman Empire. Those come in really handy for Paul, don't they? That comes in really handy 
in the spread of the gospel, right? So, again, when you think about this in light of this idea of God being silent, God is never silent. God is always at work, and he's always at work accomplishing his good pleasure. Uh, So, in addition to the, the Roman road system, the vast network of roads, um, this is also the period of time where you had the uh, the Essenes. Am I saying that right, Shane? The Essenes. Who, who's familiar with the Essenes? Somewhat. What, what about the Essenes? I mean, that's where the Dead Sea Okay. This is a, a sort of a separatist sect, um, a bit of a mystical sect, but they were um, seeking to be devoted to um, the traditions of Judaism. Um, they um, occupied an area, region near the Dead Sea, and um, the Dead Sea Scrolls is believed that they, it was their record of, of a whole range of, of things, of life and culture, and, but also uh, uh, Old Testament biblical manuscript. Um, it just provides, the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and that record that they kept during this period of time provides tremendous um, um, support to the accuracy of the Old Testament manuscripts as we have them. Would you say any more about that, Shane, in terms of the significance of that? Um, yeah, I mean, as far as, far as our, what comes down for us, that's probably the most, the most significant thing. They, they were probably um, a group that was following someone who was in the hereditary line of the high priest because the, the um, Sadducees, had taken over control of Israel were more political. Mm-hmm. They actually had no bloodline back to Aaron. And so they, they went out to the desert um, trying to reestablish the purity of the temple because they looked at the high priest in Israel as illegitimate. And, and so in that way, they give testimony to the disdain that people had for the Sadducees at that time. Mm-hmm. So again, when you think about just that period of time in history when God is silent, he's not really silent. And this is just another little historical point um, that we can look back on and, and, and be greatly encouraged by. This is also the period of time where the Septuagint is written, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And of course, what does that do but make the Old Testament scriptures accessible, widely, widely, widely accessible um, in terms of that translation into the most dominant singular language of that time. So, incredibly significant events. And of course, we know that the coming of Christ, um, I mean, it begins with prophecy. It begins with reference to the promised Messiah. It's the fulfillment of what had been spoken in the Old Testament. So, if you, if you weren't able to draw that connection or even understand it linguistically, then you're talking about potential barriers to understanding what's really taking place here um, in the advent of John the Baptist and ultimately the coming of Christ and, and the meaning of this next period, this next substantive period of redemptive history um, and its connection to what had already taken place and been recorded in the Old Testament. So significant um, events, significant things that took place during this silent period to give us great confidence that God's never silent. He's never silent. 
And it also, again, lends credence to the, the, just the basic spiritual principle that in the absence of some kind of potentially, maybe even more often, a self-centered tendency to want to feel God moving in some individual, self-defined kind of way in our own lives to make us feel better about our spiritual state, that there is a rootedness and a groundedness of our faith in actual history, in actual events that have already occurred. And when you look at what Scripture calls us to, particularly in the Psalms, in the devotional way, in the worship hymn book of the people of Israel, is it not dominated by a recounting of the works of God and what those works represent about His character and His purposes and His plans and His kindness and His work and salvation and being the one who's a refuge and the one who rescues and the one who heals, all these different recountings of God's work and favor and kindness in the past as a source of spiritual strength for the present. So all this brings us to this place of recognizing that part of our life in Christ is a life that's rooted in history. And it, its future is also rooted in history. And even our current life of devotion and spiritual life and vitality is tied to our understanding and recollection of and meditation upon historical events recorded for us in Scripture, right? Very important for us to understand that. Especially in light of our tendency in our flesh and what is, through the ages, been a common tendency of man. And that is to long for some very narrowly self-defined understanding and experience of God that fits our sensibilities that gives us a sense of oh I'm really I'm really sensing God's presence now this is this is what I need and I'm not I'm not saying that that's not good for God to meet us in unique ways meet us emotionally and move us in ways that are significant and, and substantive in our whole being I'm not discounting that I'm just saying that that's not all there is by any stretch and in fact that is certainly not what we need to bank our spiritual life and vitality upon ultimately. But when you look at this flow of history, we're going to move forward in the, in the text next week and, and really look at this great account of um, the prophecy of, of the coming of the forerunner of the Messiah. But the passage in Colossians of Colossians 4, 4 to 5 is just profound when you think about this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons in the fullness of time. And I think that one of the greatest uh, tendencies we have in our, in our efforts to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and have a vibrant spiritual life and relationship and fellowship with God is that we tend to get locked into our own timetable of things, right? We tend to get preoccupied with when we think certain things should happen or fall into place. And if, if nothing else in Scripture or in history points to this, this certainly does, that there was 400 years where God was silent, but in fact not really 
silent, not really moving and working according to his perfect timetable and plan and purpose. And we have this great testimony of two people in particular who play this significant role in the advent of Christ, who demonstrate not some extravagant, super lofty giftedness and they're the obvious choice for this great period of, of historical redemptive history. You know, it's just a priest doing his duty according to custom and his wife faithfully at his side, fulfilling all the commandments of the law and being faithful and God seeing them as righteous. And then, and then this happens. The angel appears. It's a great, great, great testimony of how God works in his people. So let's be faithful in that. Well, that's all I have. Anybody have any final thoughts before we pray and are dismissed? All right, next week we'll jump into the passage in a little more in depth. I hope, I hope you're not teaching on... Oh, good. Well, you might want to come so you can kind of refine your notes, you know. Let's pray.